We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome coaches, players, welcome everybody. Coach Bo here. We call this the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass because we're trying to master the key coaching principles and strategies efficiently and in the right order. Now, can we really master anything? Mm, that's not for me to say, but I'd lean towards saying no. I think most of you would agree with that. Is true mastery attainable? Eh. But in any case, I just like the way Masterclass draws in those of you that are here. Some of you just found it. Coincidentally, whatnot, it showed up on your feed. You saw it on Twitter. You came across the 8020baseball.com website, what have you. But I know there's people that are drawn to that word, like masterclass. Like, I want to master something. I want to be really good at something. Now, is that attainable? Eh, that is not something we're going to get into here. But the 8020 baseball mission is to drive home the importance of prioritizing what we are coaching and then how to most efficiently and effectively get it to our players. We're looking at the big needle movers. We're trying to master those key concepts and then master it in a way where we can effectively and efficiently coach it to our players and team. So at the end of the day, I like the term masterclass. I'd seen that on some other things that I saw out there years ago. And I said, you know what? That's probably going to draw in the people that I really want to listen to this, That are the people that I'm really trying to help serve. Those of you that are listening, you coaches and some players, parents that are listening to this, you are exactly who I am trying to help out here and serve and be a part of and work with and have success with. Hey, speaking of success, my group of grade school friends, guys I went to grade school with, played ball with way back when I was seven, eight, nine years old and through high school and that whole group of guys that I grew up with, we get together every August and this year it fell into September. We get together and we do an entire Saturday. We do a whole event and it's, it's, quite the deal. We start with the fantasy football draft. While I'm not too much into the fantasy football draft, I get there. I'm a part of it, kind of a, a liaison of some sorts. But nonetheless, afterwards, we go out and we play about five or six hours of wiffle ball, and it's just a great time. I mean, imagine you're 40 years old and 15, 16 of the guys you grew up with were all out there playing wiffle ball together, having a blast. And we go jump in the pool. We got the taco guy come. We catch some late night football on the big screen. It's just a good time. And so I'm getting a ride to the airport. Now I got to fly there. I'm up here in Boise. I got to fly down. All my buddies are down there for the most part in Southern California. And so on Friday, I hopped in an Uber to go down to the Boise airport. And I'm about 20 minutes from the airport, 25 minutes from the airport. And I got in the car and I started chatting with the driver. Guy was older and he ended up being 67 years old. He said he just went to his 50th high school year, 50 year high school reunion over at Caldwell High in Idaho, just outside, it's a, kind of outside, a, kind of a more of a farming town, just outside of Boise, not too far outside. In fact, now the houses in Boise stretch all the way to Caldwell. So nonetheless, I was sitting there talking to him and I asked him what he did and he said he umpired. And he said he'd been umpiring since 1978, 43 years of umpiring. He's umpired, he's refereed every sport. He really liked doing youth in high school. And I could tell this guy was sharp. His name was Michael. So we're driving and he's taking me through downtown and we're going to the airport. And I asked him after he 
was sharing with me a lot of cool stuff from from an umpire's perspective and a referee's perspective. I just asked him, I said, hey, you know, I do this podcast and I'm really big on the one or two or three major things that coaches need to know or the major needle movers. And then we can work from there. But we got to get these big needle movers, 80-20. We got to get the 20% of things that move 80% of the needle. We got to get those accurate. We got to be good at those. We got to know what they are. And I said, hey, Michael, what is the number one thing in 43 years of umpiring and refereeing? What is the number one thing you'd recommend to my listeners, to the coaches that listen, that want to get better, that want to have success? What is the number one thing you would recommend to them from an umpire's perspective? And he said, easy answer, Bo. He said, don't show us up. Coaches, don't show us up. This is a umpire, a referee that does trainings. He trains high school and youth umpires. He's been in it for 43 years, and he said, do not, whatever you do, do not show them up. He said, never yell at them, walk out, don't stare them eye to eye. Maybe you look out towards the field as you're talking to them. Have a conversation with them. It all goes back, and I told them about the two-step plan, the two-step process that I shared with you guys about 20 episodes ago on how to handle any bad or, I should say, perceived bad call by the umpire. I laid it out. Go back and listen to that episode. There's two specific steps, and it all ties into what he said. It all wraps around not showing him up. When I told Michael about it, he completely concurred. He said, first, you got to know if it's even worth going out and discussing. Is it a play that's worth going out and asking to see if you can get it switched? Remember, the goal is not to argue. The goal is to get the call reversed. The goal is not to argue. The goal is not to shout. The goal is not to make the umpire look bad. The goal is not to look cool. The only thing and the only reason you are even talking to the umpire in this particular case when you think there's a perceived bad call is to get the call reversed. So you first ask yourself, is it even worth going out? Is this something that can be changed? And if you're not sure, then you can go out. But then from there, it's do not show up the umpire. So 43 years, been umpiring since 1978, runs the clinics on umpiring up here in the Boise area, gets together, actually gets together with all the high school coaches in the area and tells them what the new rules are for the year so he's got a pretty good sized role he's been in it a long time and he said the number one thing coaches do not do the number one thing you should not do is show them up he said don't show me up don't show me up and when he said that I was thinking you know could you imagine the way youth coaches even high school and I mean pretty much any coach but in the major leagues and things like that they're getting paid more money can you imagine these youth coaches doing that at their work because most youth coaches almost all youth coaches if not all are not baseball coaches for a living right they are doing something else they're experts they're professionals in other areas you guys are all doing something for the most part in other areas could you imagine yelling at a coworker, a subordinate or your boss could you imagine yelling across the office across the construction site across the office the way that we talk to umpires the way we communicate with umpires. And baseball and youth sports is simply a game to, it's a vehicle in which we can use sports to make young people better adults while having a lot of fun. And then we go out there and we turn it into this yell fest when we don't get calls our way. I just, I couldn't imagine 
those same coaches that I see that I've seen over the years yelling and screaming and acting a fool, looking a fool, yelling at the umpire. I couldn't imagine them doing that anywhere else in their life. Well, at least to that extent, with that much anger and at that tone, at that level of yelling, I just couldn't imagine it. And if you think about it, it's not only silly to yell at umpires, but it's also childish and there's no room for it. So my Uber driver on the way to the airport provided us with the tip of the week. Now, I had a couple other tips I was going to present, but this one came up and I said, wow, first off, I vetted the guy. I listened to the guy for like 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, he knows what he's talking about. This guy knew all of what he was talking about when it came to umpiring. He was passionate about umpiring. So I was feeling him out, trying to have my BS detector on, and he he passed all the tests. He was definitely heavily involved in umpiring, had been for a long time. You could tell. And he could talk about the finite details of umpiring, not just baseball, but all the sports. And so that's why I popped that question on him. What's the number one thing my listeners should know not to do? What's the number one thing youth coaches should know not to do when it comes to dealing with you as an umpire? And he said, don't show me up. So speaking of being a good person, speaking of keeping your cool, we have part two today with Coach Patrick Murphy, part two of our interview. And Coach Murphy keeps bringing the wisdom here in part two. We're going to transition the interview. It transitions more into a what can we learn from Coach Murphy about relating and building rapport and getting player buy-in. If you don't get the buy-in, it doesn't matter how many drills you have. It doesn't matter how many skills you can teach. If you don't get buy-in as a coach, you don't get a team that's successful. Bottom line, you have to have buy-in. You have to have trust. You have to have players that will believe you, listen to you, and follow you before you ever can share with them the wisdom, the skills, the techniques, and strategies. Remember, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And also, more importantly, I think, or more accurately in baseball when it comes to coaching, players do not care what you know until they know you care. And that's a line that Coach Murphy said. I've heard him say it. So I'm going to splice back in the interview. We're going to jump back in to the interview about a third of the way in. And here we go. All right. Now I want to get into the thing that I preface at the beginning of of the episode. You are the first person I think of when I hear people first coaching. I see this a lot. It seems like it's really resonating on Twitter. I know you're always retweeting stuff. And and if you want to follow Coach Murphy on Twitter, if you want, I recommend you follow him on Twitter at Coach Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y, just like Murphy's always spoke, at Coach Murphy 14, at Coach Murphy 14, if you're on Twitter. And I'll tell you what, I can't vouch for Twitter, the Twitter's fear, but I know the baseball community on there is really a, is a fun follow. And you know, there's really some great people to follow. And Coach Murphy is one of those. I definitely recommend you follow Coach Murphy. It's at Coach Murphy 14. And one of the things I see that on Twitter a lot is in the last year or so has been a lot of the people first coaching. And I love this a message that's that's getting out there. You're a huge proponent of this, obviously. What's the backstory? What's your backstory to this mindset that you have? Well, I did uh, mention kind of in the onset that we've had a real success 
last season a couple of years ago. And, you know, I think if you're going into coaching and you're the high school coach and you're thinking, you know, what is my bar for success? What is my target? What am I reaching out for? What's out there that we're chasing down? I would suggest the national championship is probably at the top of the mountain. And having been there and accomplished that and lived through that, I can say I have a nice shiny ring that is an important trinket to look at and to hold with, hold on to. But for me, what I remember about that whole experience is not the ring. I can guarantee you that I, I don't wear the ring, but I remember the people. I remember the challenges that we had in the middle of the season where we had to really pull together. I remembered a lot of the individuals that overcame and that grew and the team that overcame and the team that grew and things that the people went through. My memories are of the people. But my memories are not of the ring that comes with it. So for me, it's just kind of what we went through, who we are, what challenges we faced. When you focus on the people uh, and the journey and the process, it's kind of where it's at for me. I truly believe I can two pretty common mantras, you know, that they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And it doesn't matter what you know. It matters what they know. And for me, those are not mutually exclusive. You know, you kind of have to have them both. What I figure is they're not going to accept what you know as their own or take ownership of it until they first have the utmost trust that you care for them. So for me, people come first. I remember, boy, I think it was 2004. Four-ish. I went to an ABCA convention and Gene Stevenson was talking about the development of the Wichita State program and the fact that he showed up and the facility was non-existent. They didn't have anything that you see as a, a glamorous college facility or, or you hear Coach you know, Augie Garrido talk about his first couple of years at Fullerton and the lack of facilities, the lack of things that they had was something that they used as an opponent to success, something that was a, a positive thing for them because it didn't matter about those things. What mattered was the people that were involved, the students that were playing the game, the coaches that were delivering their message, the administration that was supporting the group. And early, early on, it just became for me about the people that are there. And I think you mentioned earlier a word that I want to circle back to as we make our way through this, and that's kind of serving those in front of you and serving those in your leadership or those under you. And I feel like you can't do that unless you put the people before the player. For me, it's for a kid to believe that I care about their curveball, they need to know I care about them. Mm. Uh, and that connection always made sense to me. I had a really interesting conversation with a parent early. Again, it's probably been 15 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, with a parent that I wasn't making the connection with that I wanted to. I was really kind of falling short of what I was trying to accomplish. And I asked the dad to come in and have a conversation and see if what he could offer me, where I might be missing, where some things are. You know, I just wasn't getting this young man's best effort. And I was looking for some inside information to try to move him along the path. And the dad said to me something that at the time, it just I was not mature enough yet to understand what he was talking about. It just, for me, it was a laughable idea. But he said, Coach, have you ever considered that maybe my son's not motivated by success? At the time, and even now, sometimes, it's, I don't know. That's hard to understand. I don't get that. But you step back and you think about, you know, what is he motivated by? Maybe he's motivated by friendship and love and support. And there's other things out there than winning the league championship or having the highest batting average on the team. He wants 
wanted to be loved on. You know, he wanted to be a part of something really cool. He didn't necessarily need to win a national championship. He wanted to be involved in a program that he had pride in. And it's been quite a venture here to, over the years to learn from everybody along the way. But that was one of those conversations that at the time I wasn't ready for, but I held it. And uh, looking back, I kind of know what dad was talking about where I didn't get it at the time. So I would definitely encourage people to put their players first as people and not as positions and not as swings and not as pitchability, but as people. People first. Yes. And that doesn't. And, and one thing I try to be very clear about with the coaches that all listen to this podcast is that being a people first coach will not, it will not hurt your chances in the standings. It will not hurt your chances of winning games. In fact, I've made the, the claim that being a people first coach will help you win more games, will help you have more success on the scoreboard. But if you're not a people first coach and you don't put people, if you don't respect your players, you don't give them the love. You don't, if they don't believe that you care about them, you may get lucky from time to time. You might have some just uber talented kids that don't really care. They got good parents or they come from good families and they don't really need you as a coach to love on them. And you may get a great pitcher that you can ride and win some games, but overall, you're not going to have as much success as the coach. That's a people first coach combined with, yeah, learning the skills and, and learning how to teach skill development strategies, you know, like you said, pitchability and things like that, of course. But I believe I'm a huge proponent like you of the people first coaches will win more in the long run overall. And in fact, maybe year to year. And yeah. at the end of the day, that's just on the scoreboard. The thing is, right, you're going to win. If you're a people first coach, you care about the kid first rather than the player. You're going to win with every single year with every single kid for the most part. Not every single, not sometimes they'll fall through. You can't always influence every kid as best you can. You can't change their lives. If it's if they're having a bad home situation, you can't always fix that. But you're going to influence and you're going to win every single year with the kids and that is the biggest game changer in life because sports, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, sports is one of the best. If not, I'm going to argue that it's the best, but that's me being biased. It's the best vehicle for us to teach life situations to our youth. And it's a microcosm of life, right? Absolutely. And I wanted to reflect on an experience that I had. I took over a baseball program that by and large just struggled. It's not really in what would traditionally be a baseball a rich community. Uh, they haven't won a league championship since 1940. When I took over, the program hadn't made the playoffs in 20 years. Uh, I came in young and enthusiastic. You know, I wanted to prove that I could win. I wanted to prove that we could make the playoffs. I wanted to prove that we could do all these things that were outcome-driven, outcome-oriented. And, you know, we were got out of the gate in a hurry and there was some short-term success. But on the long-term, building a program with sustainable traditions, that was not going to work. So we scaled back everything. We completely went through a, a paradigm shift on what we were trying to do and what was important to us as a group. My first year there, 12 players try out for the program as freshmen. And we're playing in one of the most competitive leagues in Southern California. And this is just kind of an offshoot program that happens to be in that league. And 12 kids showed up. So you're not being real selective with those tryouts. But we created kind of credo of sorts. We came up with four things that we thought were really important character, enthusiasm, responsibility, and opportunity 
community and we kind of highlighted what those four things meant to each of the players in our program, what our program was going to be about. And once we started focusing on these other things that were bigger than winning a baseball game and they were bigger than somebody's batting average is when things really started to change. The program came together, the culture changed, the kids changed, uh, how they related to each other changed, how the parents connected with the program and supported the program changed. The numbers in three years went from 12 to over 40 students that tried out for the program. Wow. We lived in uh, the schools in an affluent area where a lot of students go to private schools. And we had built enough of a buzz in the community that people were staying at their public school because we were doing things uh, that we thought trumped winning, trumped trophies. And as a result, ultimately, it actually was leading to that. We have a player that's on the precipice of the Major League Baseball. He's a triple A pitcher for the Red Sox, Connor Subold. He was a frontline pitcher for the Cal State Fullerton, pitched in Omaha twice. And uh, we were doing big things there. And uh, I believe that a lot of it started when we reshifted what our focus was. It's not a trade-off. It's not, I'm going to trade being a, like you said, I'm, you're not trading to be a people first, a kid first coach. And you're trading that for for wins and you're trading, oh, I'm going to be that, but then we're going to go four and 23. It's not that at all. And if you look at all the great coaches that are consistently great in any sport over time, now they have their different ways of doing it and different personalities, of course, but it almost always comes down to building a, a great culture and building a great culture starts with the coach having the paradigm like you said, of putting it's a kids first, it's a person first, it's a people first mindset rather than, oh, that's my starting pitcher or that's my designated hitter or that's my third baseman. It's no, that's Timmy. And you can kind of see his life. You might even see some of the struggles he's going with off the field. You may envision his hobbies. You can, you know, no, I mean, it's crazy. Like, I think if I asked, <laughs> if I asked some of my old coaches that I had, if, you know, what was, what were my main two hobbies that I did? Like, they would have no idea. Like, they had no idea. Like, they could tell you what's wrong with my swing. They could tell me what I needed to work on with my changeup. But I feel like some of them I had over the years, like they wouldn't even know I had a brother that was at the same school with me. They might vaguely know. You know, I feel like you don't need to know their whole, you don't need to know everything about every player. And that's probably healthy not to know everything about every player in a way, but that doesn't mean you can't know them really on a deeper level, right? I, would you agree with what I'm saying there, coach? Absolutely. I think, like I said, it's got to be, a, for me, a relationship that is built on trust and an acknowledgement that person is a person of away from his uniform. So I see what you're saying. There's some, there's a gray area there where you don't want to blur too many lines. Uh, you want parents to be able to parent there and you know, you're not going to go to dinner with your kids at their houses or anything like this. But from your time in the afternoon working with these kids, you got to know what their buttons are. You got to know what it is that is motivating them. And I think you can't do that without knowing if you have a brother on this campus. You know, you got to know a little bit about those kids we coached the player together and this player, we coached the player together. And I remember sitting out there and he would kind of listen. He was, he was kind of a, he was a really smart kid. He is a smart kid. And now he's, you know, in his early twenties and a really good baseball player, definitely a really good high school player and played in college a little bit. He knew the game really, really well. He was, he was one of those rare kids that you see now that just knew the game. He, he was a, he was a baseball kid, knew the game, watched the game, could analyze the game. He was a throwback kid from the fifties, 
60s, 80s. And I remember talking to him about baseball so many times, pitching, hitting this, that, or mostly pitching, but he would, and he would kind of just, yeah, it was kind of shrug, you know, I was trying to teach him, you know, I was trying to work with him to be a better pitcher. And most of the time it was about pitching and he would look at me kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one time I just, I heard him say something about surfing to somebody, one of his teammates. And I said, so you surf? I mean, his head turned fat. He looked at me, he's like, yeah. And he got a big old grin. And I said, so where your, where's your, now I've never surfed in my life, coach. I've never surfed. Now I've gone to the beach. I grew up in Southern California like you. You know, I've been to the beach a thousand times. I've never actually been on a surfboard, but I said, you know what? Maybe this is an opportunity. And I was actually genuinely interested because I love watching surfing. I just never done it. And I go, so tell me, uh, where's your spots? Where do you surf? He's like, oh, I go down here. I go up here. I go down the trestles. I go here and I go, okay, that's cool. All right. Now you got to, you do a longboard, shortboard. How's that work? You know, I kind of deferred it, like let him kind of feel like he was, you know, the expert, which he was compared to me. And you should have just seen it. And I said, so how often do you go? When do you go, do you, anybody on the team surf with you? And, and I mean, he opened up now you're thinking, oh, that's great. So now you know a little bit about the kid and surfing. I'll tell you what, the rest of the year, and I had worked with this kid for four, three and a half years. That last half year I worked with him, he was never more attentive. He was open. He was listening. His response to me was totally different. It had changed, done a 180. And I thought, man, I care. I showed that I cared about him as a person. It was cool. You can look at it as coaches. You go, well, that's good for him. You know, no, it's good for, it's good. Like to, no, finding out about people's enjoyable, being interested in people's backstory. Actually, if you do it, and most of you that listen, I'm sure do this, or it's enjoyable to learn about. I mean, we watch documentaries. We watch the, we read autobiographies. We like watching stories. We watch a video on YouTube. It, we like learning about people. Um, I know my wife likes to follow these Olympic athletes and their backstory. She wants to know about the backstory more than their track time. So um, yeah, I just kind of, when you were talking about that. They don't care what you know until they know that you care. You know, there's another one that kind of goes right with that in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the book by Stephen Covey. It's seek first to understand, then to be understood. They don't care to understand what you're telling them or anything like that until they feel like you've understood them. Love it. Love it. Okay. So what's a, a couple of things that a youth coach, and when I say youth, you know, I'm thinking high school and down, under 18, youth coach. What are two things, one thing, what are, what are a couple main things a coach can do to build high quality rapport with the player? What's a strategy? Is a strategy that you've used over the years, something that's worked? Yeah, definitely. You know, I was fortunate enough to coach my kids growing up. I have a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old that coached their youth team. So I had a chance to see how that environment's a little bit different than the high school environment. But I still think some of the foundational principles can translate. And, you know, along my coaching journey, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate to be connected with three of uh, probably the best coaches in Orange County history, John Weber at Cypress who is the head coach there. He's won two CIF championships most recently, the 2019 one we talked about. Benji McDoor at Huntington Beach has built up a program that is now as strong a public school as there is in Southern California. And Eric Borba, who has elevated Orange Lutheran's baseball program to a perennial top five national team. And two things that I've noticed that they, that they do that really stood out, because if you know the men, they are not the same people. They're very, very different in their everyday interactions, but there are two things that stood out for me that I gathered that were uniform. And that is that they all three are excellent relationship builders. They focus on making connections with those kids daily basis. And the second one that I think needs to be moved to the front of the conversation in today's coaching is they're vulnerable in front of their players. They're both like, are all three of them are alpha male leader types. Like you're not gonna, they're gonna be out in front. They're leaders in the best sense of the word, but they're also going to step back and say, 
hey, I, I was wrong about this. I made a mistake here. And they're going to show the kids that they're willing to learn. There's going to be a, a genuine care about their kids. They're going to they're gonna balance their strong foundational principles with like a healthy curiosity for learning. They want always to find ways to be better, which I think you have rightfully touched on to this point. But for me, there are some definite staples for building rapport with your players from right away, know your stuff, but you got to be competent. They have to look at you and you're asking them to do something. They have to know that you have a background of experience. And again, going back to the vulnerability part, you have to be authentic, you know, warts and all, you know, kids can see, you know, right through pretentiousness. Like I have more of a mild manner than other coaches that I've been with. I cannot escalate my demeanor without the kids noticing that that's not my authentic self. That's not how I communicate. But I also don't want someone who is authentically a little bit higher charge than me to stop and try to act like I do. Like you have to kind of be authentic. You got to be true to who you are. You got to love your players. You got to love your people, not your players, but your people. You got to communicate the truth. I check in with kids every single day. You've probably heard this every day when kids come to practice uh, while they're playing catch or they're warming up or they're stretching. I make sure that every day, 100% of those kids have some kind of connection with me. And uh, I hope to empower uh, their ownership stake in the process and the outcome of what we're trying to accomplish throughout the course of the season. And I wanted to share a story about this that I think relates just based on conversations that took place in my house, you know, at the dinner table here. We have, like I said, a 20-year-old and a 15-year-old. My 15-year-old was a ninth grader this past year. His son, his coach was gruff, the uh, old school gym teacher type coach you see in an after school special, you know, just real gruff, yells a lot, he's real loud. And my my son had come home and, and I, I will say this, that my son had, had the most growth he's ever had as an athlete this year. So like I said, I, for me, I can't be that way. But for him, that, that was just worked. And that also worked for my son. But he was at home at the dinner table and he was having a rough day. Coach really gave it to him a little bit that during that game was a little bit down on his performance and he didn't hide it. And yeah, at the dinner table, he wanted to tell us all how, how he was responding to it. And he, you know, he didn't appreciate it and he didn't understand why the coach was upset at him and the coach was on him and the coach was doing this, the coach was doing that. And then my older son, who's been down the road a little bit, and he was the shortstop on the national championship team that we talked about, transitioned into college. And during a COVID season where everybody came back, they had some established players. He just wasn't getting an opportunity to play as much as he wished he could. And he became a guy that was outside of the circle. You know, he was not a guy that at practice was getting charged from the coach. He wasn't getting that connection. He wasn't getting that investment. And he very poignantly said to my son, my younger son, his brother, that, you know, I wish my coach was yelling at me. I wish he was engaged in me. I wish he was paying attention. You know, it's a lot worse going in and out of practice and not even hearing the coach tell you anything about whether you're achieving or not achieving what they're hoping for. So I'm not a yeller. I'm not a screamer. I don't, that's something that I am necessarily, you know, pushing onto anybody. I would like to see people be authentic. But in that conversation, it was eye-opening that even a loud coach that's engaging in someone, if there's a, a follow-through and an arm around the shoulder and connection, I can tell you my younger son's Instagram picture is his coach with his arm around him on uh, during an offensive timeout. So although the coach rides a little bit, he knows he loves him. He knows he's in his corner. He knows he's got his back and he loves the gentleman forward. It's not just screaming all the time. Meanwhile, my older son is missing that connection and that hurt him more than my younger son knew at the time. I think it was a good lesson for both of them. But for me, you've got to connect with the guys every single day. You've got to be authentic. you got to be you. All right, this is Coach Bo back with you to wrap up this episode. We're going to end that interview. We're going to pause it there. We're going to get back to part three next week. 
Man, that's really good stuff right there. Coach Murphy, Coach Patrick Murphy, man, that is some good stuff. And next week, there's more of it. So to recap, umpire, Uber driver, Michael, 43 years in the game of umpiring and refing. He said the number one thing you don't want to do as a coach, number one thing, don't show me up. He says, quote, don't show me up. Don't show up umpires. Number one thing. So remember, the goal is to get the call reversed. If you can do it, get the call reversed. Don't show them up because that's going to reduce your chances of getting that call reversed. And we talked about why this is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass, mastering the priorities, mastering the priorities, and then mastering efficiently applying and effectively applying those coaching strategies so we can win with our players, the people, and on the scoreboard. So make sure to tune back in next week for the last part with Coach Murphy Mann. You think the last two parts were good? It just stays good. It's going to stay good. Part three next week. We'll see you then. If you get the chance, please click the link in your show summary right there on your podcast app. There's a link right there. You can support the show. Head over to the website, 8020baseball.com. There's a ton of good stuff over there, a ton of good stuff. And you can follow me on Twitter at 8020 underscore baseball, 8020 underscore baseball. All right, until next week, take care of yourself. Take care of that health. Take care of those families and take this information out to the field. Take it out to the training grounds. Take it out there to practice and make your team, your players, and the baseball community a much better place. Adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.